Um, before, my name is Andy, by the way. Welcome. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, before we jump into our message today, I want to take a moment and just talk a little bit about who we are as a church, uh, who we are becoming as a people. Uh, and so I want to read this specifically as it relates to the next generation. So I want to read this statement that, uh, that comes from a document we call our aspirations. It's what we aspire to or what we want to become, who we want to become. And here it is. We aspire to pass our faith to the next generation. We are a people who teach and model the way of Jesus to our children. We believe the family is a little church. So families are little churches. Parents are the primary spiritual influencers of your children. Parents, you might say that you are the pastors of your children. It is your, primarily your responsibility to teach your children to lead them to Christ and to teach them and show them how to live for him. That is primarily up to you, parents. It's not primarily up to staff at church or programming at church. It is your task primarily. And the reason why God gave you children is so that you could teach them who Jesus is and show them how to follow him. That's why God gave you children. The primary task of parenting isn't making sure they get a good college scholarship, helping them find out what their career is going to be, uh, helping them find a good spouse and, and have kids and have a happy little life. That, those things are fine, but the primary task of being a parent is to lead your children to Jesus and show them how to live for him. That's why God gave us our children. So families are little churches. We also believe that the church is a big family. The church isn't a, a content producer or a service provider. The church is a big family. And so as a big family, we at Lakeview Church welcome kids of all ages into our church family. This is their church too. And including them in the life and ministry of the church is a key factor in their continued faith in Christ as adults. Um, a lot of churches want to segregate out youth and children. So we have youth stuff, we have children's stuff, we have adult stuff, and we separate all the different generations. Uh, and we at Lakeview recognize there's value in taking the kids, like today is the Lakeview Kids Sunday. The elementary kids are downstairs having teaching that is at their age level. We recognize the value of that. Wednesday nights we have youth group. Um, it's called NYG, not youth group, because the middle schoolers named it. And when middle schoolers name youth group, they call it not youth group because they're middle schoolers. Um, but it's, it's youth group, right? So uh, we have age-appropriate teaching on Wednesday nights for the kids and on every other Sunday. And then on some Sundays, we include the kids up here. The elementary kids join us because this is their church. And one of the biggest influencing factors in adults who are following Christ is when they were kids, were they connected to the rest of the church or were they isolated out and separated from the rest of the church? That's one of the biggest factors. And so having them connected to the church is really important. And one of the ways that we're, that we're doing that, trying some things this, uh, this year to see how they work, is we're doing something called sessions. Sessions are classes or studies that bring fellowship and connection along with the teaching of God's word. And in one of our sessions, the Wednesday night one, we are integrating with the students. So the youth group is joining the adults as we talk about God's word and how to live as Christians together in a multi-generational setting because the teenagers, the kids, need to feel like they're part of the church. And I don't know about you, I learn a ton from the students on Wednesday nights. 
When you ask them questions, some of the answers they come up with are profound. And so I learn a ton from them. I hope they're learning from us as the adults who are in the room. Uh, but th those are Wednesday nights. We have other sessions that are, aren't age uh, integrated like that. We've got a Monday night one. Uh, we've got Thursday night for men, Wednesday morning for women. Uh, I think there's a Thursday night one for women as well. There's a Sunday night one for Financial Peace University. So there's lots of opportunities to connect and grow and learn. Um, that Wednesday night one, we include the kids because we want to include them in the church. It's their church too, and we want to integrate as a family so that we can pass our faith to the next generation. Families are little churches. Churches are big families. Um, so that's who we are. That's who we want to become. Uh, before we get into uh, the, or the sermon, we also have something that we call clarify. Uh, you can text a question in to the number that's on the screen. Uh, during the sermon or, or any kind of doctrine or Bible or theology question and we will try to answer them uh, as we can uh, over, the, over the weeks. And so we've got a couple of questions that have been submitted and I want to answer them this morning as best I can. The first one is this, can you clarify the difference between a soul and a spirit? So this comes from last week, Mike Mall was preaching um, about being made in the image of God and he talked about how we have a body, soul, and spirit, and that's one way that we're distinguished from animals. Um, and so somebody texted in, can you clarify the difference between a soul and a spirit? And the short answer is no. <laughs> um, sometimes the Bible seems to use the words soul and spirit interchangeably, and sometimes it seems to use them referring to separate parts of humans uh, and we don't really know exactly how that fleshes itself out. Uh, but there are kind of two classic views in Christian theology on this. The first one is this. Humans are two parts in one. A body or a physical part and a non-physical soul spirit. So soul and spirit are sort of synonymous in that, in that uh, view. There were two parts, body and soul or spirit. That's one view. That's a very cl classic view. And the other view is that humans are three parts in one, a body, a soul, and a spirit. So the immaterial part or the non-physical part is actually two non-physical parts. And the Bible doesn't really articulate clearly which one of these is the case. Um, God is three in one. So are humans three in one? Well, that we're made in the image of God. We reflect him in that way. Um, we have physical health, mental health, and emotional health, three aspects of being human. So maybe those somehow relate to the body, the soul, and the spirit. Or maybe our souls and spirits are really just sort of one thing that's all mixed together. We just don't really know, but that's the, the condensed answer. Um, the second question that was submitted is, since marriage is one woman and one man for life, what about spouse deaths or divorces and remarriages was the first a mistake are remarriages biblical? Let me say, first, was the first a mistake? That's not my place. I can't judge that, okay? So I'm not gonna address that particular question. But the question of death, divorce, remarriage, what does the Bible say about that? Uh, again, this could be a whole sermon by itself or a whole series by itself, but try to condense it down. The Bible gives three allowances to end a marriage. Death, that comes from 1 Corinthians 7.39, sexual immorality, that comes from Matthew 5.32, and abandonment, that comes from 1 Corinthians 7.15. In those three cases, the Bible says it's okay to, to get divorced, and therefore, in those three cases, it would be okay to get remarried. It doesn't give any other 
any other outs. And I know that's hard, and I know that divorces uh, happen for a lot of other reasons besides those three things. And that's just part of the fallen world that we live in. And, and so if you say, well, where does that leave me? I was in a marriage that ended not for one of those reasons, and I've gotten remarried. How do I, how, where do I fall now? And here's what I would say. If that's your situation, remember 1 Peter 4, 8, that says, love covers a multitude of sins. We worship a God who is gracious and merciful and forgiving. And he will look at your past, and if you bring that to Christ, he will say, I've paid for that through my death on the cross covering your sins. Like the song we just sang, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken, right? Jesus Christ went to the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. So if you have that in your past, bring it to God, confess it to him, live in his grace and forgiveness, and if you've gotten remarried, be faithful to the marriage that you're in now. It starts a new day and you go forward loving your husband or your wife with all that you have in a godly way. And so, Speaking of marriage, that's the topic for the message today. Last week, Mike Mall talked about how he let his goatee grow and his wife found it irresistible. <clears throat> so I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> I let my mustache grow because I thought maybe I would try it. And you laugh, but I've seen a lot of you guys out there with a week's worth of stubble on your face. So you tried it too. I won't. I won't tell you what Corinne thinks about it, but she did say I could keep it long enough to make the joke this morning. Um, <clears throat> now, the funny thing is my kids really like the mustache. In fact, one of them said, you look like Captain America in Infinity War when he comes back with a beard. And so if anybody knows of a good eye doctor, I think we need to make an appointment for our kids because uh, I do not look like Captain America. We're talking about marriage and uh, I will say at the beginning a couple of things. Uh, parents, there are a couple of things in this sermon that are going to be rated PG-13. So it is Lakeview Kids Sunday. Our elementary kids are downstairs. If you don't really want your middle school-aged kids or if you have kids you didn't send downstairs hearing that, um, you might want to take them out to the fireside room and uh, we'll mute the sermon in there if we need to. So um, we, that'll come in a, a little bit. But I want to say that. And the other thing is, uh, this is not the sermon I had originally prepared for today. God called an audible last night at 9.30. Um, and so <clears throat> if I'm a little jittery, it's because I've had a lot of coffee and not a lot of sleep. God does this every now and again, but uh, I trust him when he does. And so uh, we're talking about marriage. We plan to preach from Genesis 2 this week anyway, and so the, it just has a little bit different direction. Let me just set, set it up this way. The institution of marriage is on a downward trend in our society. In 2015, the Supreme Court, through the Obergefell decision, legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Two, that was June in 2015. And since then, marriage rates in our country have plummeted. According to the U.S. Census Bureau today, less than half, so 46%, less than half of American households are married couple households. What that means is the majority of American adults are not married and are not getting married. Less than half are married couple households. 40% of children born in the United States are born to unmarried parents. 40%. One in four children in the United States lives in a single-parent home. 
and more than 50% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. It's over 50%. Now, interestingly, among evangelical Christians, the divorce rate is 25%. So having faith does make a difference in your long-term marriage success. But I think it's safe to say that marriage is on the outs in our society. It's, it's on a downward spiral. And so what I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart to talk about this morning is why does marriage matter? Why should we care about how marriage is defined or who marries who? It's been so highly politicized in our culture today. Why does it matter? Why should we care? That's the point. Why does marriage matter? And we're going to look in Genesis chapter 2 to find the answer to that. Um, so in your Bibles, find Genesis chapter 2. Why does marriage matter? The first reason why is this. Marriage matters because it is needed to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. We should care about marriage because without marriage, we cannot do what God created us to do. Marriage is necessary in order to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. Well, what is God's purpose for humanity? If marriage is necessary to fulfill that, what is that purpose for humanity? That comes from actually Genesis 1, verse 28, right after God created Adam and Eve in his own image, he said, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here is the reason why God created humans, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's, that's the purpose for which we were created and we cannot fulfill that purpose without the institution of marriage. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, and just to give you the timeline, Genesis chapter 1 gives us the creation week, all seven days, and then Genesis chapter 2 steps back a little bit and looks at what happened on day 6 specifically. So Genesis chapter 2 is going back a little bit in time to day 6, and we're going to see what happens in day 6. God creates the man, he creates Adam, and then we pick up the story in Genesis 2, 18. Right after God creates Adam, then, he, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is when God establishes the institution or the relationship of marriage. And we see that he creates it as a unique relationship between a man and a woman. God creates this. Now, 
marriage is necessary in order to fulfill God's purpose for humanity, well, what is the purpose of marriage within that overarching purpose? And I think Genesis chapter 2 shows us three primary purposes for which God created marriage. The first one is this, companionship. In, in, in verse 18, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, if you remember from Genesis 1 in the creation week, all throughout the, the story, God creates something and then sees it as good. God creates something and sees it as good. God creates something and sees it as good. But when he creates Adam by himself, he says it's not good. It's the only time in the creation story that he said it's not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. God established marriage for, for the purpose of companionship. And he created Eve, Adam's wife, to be a companion to Adam so that they could be a companion to each other. And that's one of the biggest purposes and that's one of the biggest rewards of marriage. When you go through a difficult season, when your spouse is diagnosed with cancer, when something happens, you have somebody in your corner walking through life with you. That's one of the purposes of marriage is companionship. Another purpose of marriage is partnership. And, and look at, back at Genesis 2.18. It says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Right? So a lot of people over the years have gotten offended by that word helper. Oh, well, Eve was just Adam's assistant. Are you saying that women are just the, you know, interns for the men? Go make me a pot of coffee. Bring me a sandwich. You're my helper. Is that what you're saying? Women are inferior? That's a demeaning word. It's actually not a demeaning word at all. The word in uh, Hebrew that is translated helper in English is the word azer. Everybody say azer. Azer. That word is used only a handful of times in the Old Testament. It's used in this story in Genesis chapter 2. And outside of that, almost every single other time, it's used to refer to God himself. It's not a demeaning term at all. Look at Psalm 70 verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. Same word, azer. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. When, when the Bible says that Eve is Adam's helper, it's not saying that she's his assistant. It's saying that she is his partner. He cannot fulfill God's created design for humankind without her. She is an indispensable part of it. God did not create two Adams. He did not create two Eves because two men cannot do that. Two women cannot do that. A man and a woman need each other. We humankinds need both sexes in order to fulfill God's commandment. And so helper is not demeaning at all. In fact, I would say I could write this psalm about Corinne. But I, Andy, am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O Corinne. You are my helper and my deliverer. I can tell you if it was not for Corinne, I would be lying in a gutter somewhere. She is not my assistant. She's the one that makes our lives work, actually. So, thank you, Corinne. Uh, anyway, God created marriage for companionship and for partnership. Back to Genesis 2.18, uh, when it says, I'll make him a helper. And then it says, fit for him. A helper fit for him. That phrase means a helper who is complementary. Now, that doesn't mean that the helper comes along and says, wow, that mustache looks really good on you, Andy. 
that's not what complementary means in this context. Complementary means we complement each other in the sense that we fit together. Male and female fit together like the pieces of a puzzle. Two males don't relate the same way that a male and a female does. Two women don't relate the same way that uh, a man and a woman do in marriage. They are fit for each other. Where one is weak, the other is strong. And where the other is weak, the the other is strong. They work together. They complement one another. And that's necessary to do the third purpose of marriage, which is procreation. Reproduction. And this should go without saying that procreation requires a male and a female. That should be common sense. But in our society, I think it needs to be stated. A man and a man cannot create a baby. A woman and a woman cannot create a baby. In order for procreation to happen, you have to have a man and a woman. That's the only option. There aren't other options. That's it. Male and female, that's how God created it. That's how he designed it. And that's how it has to be. Marriage is about companionship, it's about partnership, and it's about procreation. This is the purpose of marriage. Now, what is not up there on that list? Your own personal happiness. Personal happiness is not one of the primary purposes of marriage. It's not. Happiness is a product, not a purpose. When we do marriage God's way, it produces happiness, but happiness is not the purpose of marriage. Happiness is the product of marriage. Now, the Institute for Family Studies backs that up. They did a massive survey among multiple countries and they found that married people across the board, married people report higher levels of happiness than people who are living together but not married. Married people report higher levels of happiness and further, Christian marriages report out the highest levels of happiness of all. So marriage produces happiness but happiness is the product, not the purpose. Now, you might look at these things and say, okay, this is the purpose for which God created marriage. Companionship, partnership, and procreation. Can't we do at least the first two of these without getting married? Can't we have friendship and can't we work together for God's mission in the world without getting married? And the answer is yes. And I do not want you to think that I am saying the Bible tells you that every person is supposed to get married and have kids. Not every person is able to have kids. Not every marriage can produce kids. Not every person is called to get married. In fact, God calls many people to be single. Jesus himself was never married. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, by the way, was himself single, and he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a gift from God. He said, if you're single, you don't have to worry about all the things that married people have to worry about. If you're a husband, you have to worry about how to please your wife. If you're a wife, you have to worry about how to please your husband. If you're single, you don't have to worry about any of that. It's a lot simpler in a lot of ways. You can just serve God and love other people and be involved in the church and in the world, right? So he says singleness is a gift, and if if we really stop and think about it, when Christ returns, none of us will be married. For all of eternity, our natural state is singleness. Marriage is a temporary stay, 
between now and when Christ returns, and the purpose is to advance God's kingdom in the world through companionship, partnership, and procreation. That's the purpose of marriage. So <clears throat> here's my, <clears throat> excuse me, here's my takeaway. First point, takeaway. Marriage is a unique relationship between a man and a woman established by God to fulfill specific purposes within his overall plan for humankind. The marriage relationship is not like any other friendship or relationship that you will have. It is between a man and a woman because that's how God designed it and created it. And in order to fulfill its purpose, it has to have a man and a woman. And that is what marriage is, that's the purpose. That's how marriage fits into God's plan. It's necessary, it matters because it's necessary for us to do what God created us to do. Number two, marriage matters because it's the basic building block of a stable society. Marriage matters because it's the basic building block of a stable society. We should care about marriage because it is the most stabilizing factor in human society. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. When that says one flesh... What that means, it means a couple of different things. First of all, it means a new family unit, right? So I'm leaving my father and mother and I'm being united to my wife and we become a new family unit, the basic unit of society, the basic building block. You can think of Lego. There's all kinds of different Lego blocks, but the basic Lego brick is the basic building block of all the, the, the Lego sets, right? That's marriage in our society. It's the basic brick, the basic building block. And one flesh refers to that new family unit. Now one flesh also refers to the act of sexual intercourse. And in Genesis 2.24, when God establishes marriage and says that they will become one flesh, he's talking about having sex as a husband and wife, and he here limits the sexual relationship to the relationship of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is against God's plan and will and design, and sex outside of marriage is a sin. Now, if, if you have had sex outside of marriage, if you have that in your past, remember 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what Jesus went to the cross to fix and to heal and to forgive. But here in Genesis 2, 24, God limits the relationship of sex to the relationship of marriage. And he says sex outside of that goes against his design. It's for a man and his wife. Why is that? Well, to understand that, we have to understand the purpose of sex. Why did God create sex? Two reasons. One, because it unites a husband and wife together. It creates a strong, intimate, and close bond and it generates a lot of affection. When I do the birds and the bees talk with our kids, I tell them sex is like glue. It, it glues a husband and wife together. That's one reason why God created sex, to unite a husband and wife together. And the other reason, and the most obvious one, is procreation, reproduction. Sex produces babies, right? Now, what about pleasure? Pleasure is like happiness. 
It's a product, but not a purpose. God did not create sex for pleasure. Pleasure is the product. When a husband and wife love, love one another and share that intimate relationship, it produces a high level of pleasure in their marriage and in their lives. In our culture, we reverse this. We think that sex is about pleasure. And the unwanted byproduct, oftentimes the unwanted byproduct, are children. So we have to legalize abortion so that we can kill babies in the womb so that we can have pleasure without consequences. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. Pleasure is the product but not the purpose of sex. Sex is for uniting a husband and wife and producing offspring and therefore sex is limited by God to the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman for life because that is what creates a stable home and a stable society. Societies that are built on healthy marriages and healthy families are healthy cultures and healthy societies. But unhealthy marriages and unhealthy families produce unhealthy cultures and unhealthy societies. That's the way it works. God created it this way. Sex outside of marriage brings negative consequences into our lives personally and our society. Remember at the beginning uh, of the message I said, according to the Census Bureau, 40% of children in the United States every year are born to unmarried parents. Okay, 40%. Now, the Center for Law and Social Policy has these statistics. Children not living with a married mom and dad, so that's 40% of children in our society, are at a greater risk of behavioral problems, mental health issues, sickness and injury, negative educational outcomes, like testing below grade level or even dropping out of high school. Living together before you get married, couples that live together before they get married are twice as likely to divorce. And anybody that has been through a divorce knows the devastation that wreaks on children. It creates havoc. The U.S. Census Bureau says that children living in unmarried households are eight times more likely to experience poverty. Eight times more likely to experience poverty. Forty percent of our kids in the United States are born to unmarried parents and that makes them eight times more likely to experience poverty. One out of four kids live in a single parent home. Eight times more likely to experience poverty. Where is our society headed? We don't need statistics to tell us. Scroll through the news. Sex outside of marriage, abandoning God's design, brings destruction and devastation and death. God is smarter than we are, and he knows how life and society and culture is supposed to work. Here's my takeaway from the second point. Sex is a unique expression of love limited by God to the unique relationship of marriage, which is necessary for human flourishing because it's the basic building block of a stable society. Sex is a unique expression of love limited by God to the unique relationship of marriage, and marriage is necessary for human flourishing as the basic building block, the most stabilizing factor of human society. Number three, why does marriage matter? Three, marriage matters because it is a reflection of God's love. 
We should care about marriage because our marriages are a testimony to the love and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage fulfills God's purpose for humanity. It's the basic building block for a stable society. And most importantly, it is a reflection of God's love as demonstrated through Jesus Christ. I get that from Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, 32, the apostle Paul quotes the creation story. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. And then in verse 32, he interprets that. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here we have a fourth purpose for marriage. God created marriage for companionship, for partnership, for procreation, and number four, for reflecting God's love. This is why God established marriage. Now, how does marriage reflect God's love? Well, when we love our spouses unconditionally and selflessly, even though they don't deserve it, and let's be honest, none of us deserve it, right? When we love them selflessly and unconditionally, even though they don't deserve it, our love becomes a reflection of God's love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we deserved it, until we cleaned ourselves up. He loves us unconditionally, even though we don't deserve it. And our marriages, when we love like that, become a living picture of God's love to others. Additionally, we have another product of marriage. So marriage produces uh, happiness. Marriage produce, sex inside of marriage produces pleasure. And number three, marriage produces holiness. There is nothing like marriage to reveal sin in your life. Very few things, very few experiences in my life had revealed my sin the way that marriage has. I had no idea how much of a selfish, selfish jerk I was until I got married. And then I realized the, the deep nature of my self-centeredness. And then I had kids and I was like, oh my goodness. Is there any hope for me? I don't know. Right? And what I found in my marriage, that Kurt and I have been married 17 years, what I found in my marriage is this. When I have moments of annoyance or irritation, when I'm frustrated with Corinne for something, if I will stop for a minute and stop thinking about whatever she's doing that's irritating me, if I will stop and examine myself, what I find almost every time is that there is something in me that needs confessed and repented of. Now, maybe she was doing something that was irritating or, or whatever. Most times she's not. But maybe she was and, you know, whatever. That's a different story. I find those moments of annoyance and irritation and frustration as gifts of God for a moment of self-examination so that I can see what I need to confess and change in my life. And God uses that to get us both closer to the image of Christ. And here's my takeaway from this third point. If marriage is is a reflection of God's love, then when we distort marriage, we distort a picture of God's love. If marriage is supposed to be a mirror that reflects the love of Christ, when you redefine marriage, reject marriage, put marriage out, whatever, it's like breaking the mirror and you can't see 
the love of Christ anymore. I think that's why our society is so anti-marriage or wants to redefine marriage. There's a spiritual component behind it. The enemy knows if he can destroy marriage, not only will he destroy the very fabric that holds society together, but he will also destroy a reflection of God's love in Christ to the world. Marriage matters. How we understand marriage matters because our marriages are a testimony to the love and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to conclude by asking the question, what about love is love? Big mantra in our society today, love is love. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Christians are supposed to be known for our love. So if God is love and Christians are supposed to be known for love and love is love, how can you as a Christian stand between two consenting adults who love one another? How can you be anti-love? And I want to respond to that by saying this. God is love, but love is not God. God is love. The most fundamental character trait of God is love, but love is not God. And as Dr. Vadi Bokum says, not all love is good. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, says this, do not love. Not all love is good. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Not all love is good, and when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he's not talking about earth that God created. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the spiritual world with its ideas and philosophies and desires that are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Don't love that. That is passing away. The ideas of the world bring death. God brings life. And God says, you might look at this relationship and say, it looks good to you. It might even feel good to you, but it's not good for you. It brings death. It leads to death, not life. I want you to live, to endure forever. When God says no, it's for our good and our protection and our life. Love is love leads to death. God is love leads to life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Love is love leads to death. God is love leads to life. Which path are you on? Let's reflect on that while we sing.